Welcome to episode two of Finding Forward, a lesson in empathy. Joining me today is Minnesota native Sue Byron. Miss Byron, a teacher and a mentor to me and to many students, offers a very unique perspective on what's going on in her home state of Minnesota and nationwide. This conversation is a very interesting one in the sense that Miss Byron is able to provide more historical context to these issues than many of us have even had the chance to unpack, nor have we even lived through. We also talk about personal finance, and there's something that I didn't get to mention in the actual conversation, but I do want to mention here. We discuss credit cards. If you have a credit card, continue to be responsible with it. If you don't have one, just know who you are as a consumer, and if you're responsible enough for one, get one. The key here is to really know who you are, as is with many other fields of life. There's a reason why, if you're a college student, credit card companies and banks like to target you to sign up. You get a lot of these offers to open up a credit card. So on your end as a listener, if you're not too well-versed in personal finance, just build some knowledge around this topic because it's very important. And when you're not making a lot of these big decisions on your own, it's a good time to learn before you are. And just think about the way that, for example, credit card companies make money Think about the tendencies of college kids, and I'll let you guys connect those dots. I don't want to keep you guys too long from getting to this conversation with Miss Byron and I, but I do want to say one last thing very quickly. When I launched episode one, it was more about the content than it was about the popularity, and that's the theme for all of these episodes. To me, it's not about the number of listeners, but how many people are actually impacted by these conversations similar to how I was when I had these conversations with these people. Some of the messages of support that I got really reminded me why I created this platform, why I brushed aside the fear that comes with starting something new in the creative fields. Because these ventures can be a little scary at times. You don't know if you're speaking to the void. You don't know what impact these conversations might have on someone's life, if any. But hearing from you guys especially some of the people that I know really well personally, discussing how they felt similar things like I did growing up or hearing some of my friends mention how they grew up in the same town as me, for example, and they never had to experience some of these things that we talk about in episode one and how they were really glad that they could hear this conversation from two different perspectives and use that as just a lens at looking at their own past and what they can do moving forward. Those types of comments and messages and feedback really just reminded me again like why I created this platform and as you listen to this episode and the episodes to come in the future I really hope that we can continue to embrace these different perspectives and embrace growing and changing so without further ado here is episode two of finding forward a lesson in empathy
Mrs. Byron, thank you for agreeing to join me today. I'm honored to be here, Kravas. So I'm expecting the majority of listeners to be your diehard fans, but for those, <laughs> for those who don't know you, could you provide a little background as to who you are, what you do, and where you're from? Excellent. So, um, so as you know, I am Sue Byron, and so a lot of my past students actually call me Mrs. Byron, but I'm actually not Mrs. Byron. I am Ms. Byron because I didn't take my husband's name in marriage. I believe in equal rights and equal opportunities, and I strongly believe in equity. And that topic of equity will come up mm. again during our conversation. So, um, I grew up in Minnesota, and I grew up in a really small town. Uh, it was a church community. I went to the local school. There were four grades in one room and four grades in another room. And then when it shut down, I went off to high school, similar to E.O. Smith, where it had a lot of different communities coming together. When I was there, I started taking marketing classes and really liked it. I have to admit that I wasn't that great of a student. So I like to, I like to think I have empathy. So the fact that I wasn't engaged in learning helps me to try to engage students in learning. And I came from a family of seven children and my father was a blue collar worker, so I was a first generation college graduate. And really sometimes I kind of think about that and think, wow, I can't even believe that I graduated from college. So many young people today believe that, you know, they go straight from high school to college. And my father really felt that it was important to have career aspirations, but to learn trades and things like that. So not every one of my brothers and sisters went to college, um, but I did go to college. I went to a community college first, and then I went to a four-year college, um, the University of North Dakota. And at that point in time, the University of, Min of North Dakota, um, their mascot was the Fighting Sioux. And that is going to come up later on in our conversation and how um, we can learn from our past, I guess. So after that, I went to teach in Apple Valley, Minnesota, and I got a really cool opportunity and opportunities, if you can have them, you wanna grab them and really go with them. Um, I got an opportunity to work for 3M during the summer and they said, hey, we'd really like you to come on board. And so I finished the school year and then that the next summer I said, okay, I'm going to be a 3M sales rep. So the first six months with the company, I actually traveled the Western half of the United States. So I had to buy myself, figure out how to get through airports and do rental cars and check myself into hotels and have meals in restaurants by myself. And I will say that that six month period of time really taught me independence and taught me that I can do things by myself. 
I don't need to have other people with me to be able to do things. So after uh, that six months, I got a territory out in Connecticut that I was kind of bored with the job. So I decided to go back to graduate school. I went to Central. Um, Central knew I had teaching experience, so they had me as a grad assistant teaching sales management. And then eventually I taught for a couple of years full-time at Central. I didn't go back to get my PhD. Maybe one of my regrets, I don't have many regrets in life. Um, I try to learn from experiences, but I kind of like that lifelong learning. So, you know, it would have been cool to be Dr. Byron, I'm just going to say. <laughs> um, and then uh, I couldn't get a teaching job because we were in hard times in the 80s. So I went to work for Cigna Healthcare in the marketing department. And after that, I, um, there was an opening at EO Smith. They were, they were uh, interested in someone who could offer some different courses, and that was me. So, you know, a lot of different marketing courses were developed, and um, I've been teaching high school ever since. I just recently left E.L. Smith after 24 and a half years. Uh, it was a hard decision, but I'm really glad I did leave, and we can talk about those reasons later on. Um, I work at Norwich Tech. It's a trade school, so it kind of goes back to my past in terms of believing in the trades and believing that students can be successful and that they don't have to necessarily go to college to be successful. So that's who I am. That's awesome. And uh, EO Smith is where our paths have crossed, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that as well. I am curious, though, with this pandemic and everything going on before we move into the conversation, how are you doing right now? You know, I feel I'm really lucky. I love people. So the pandemic was really hard for me because of the isolation. So, you know, if you're a teacher, you love to be, at least you should love to be with your students. You should love to be um, interacting with people, helping people grow, so on and so forth. I feel like I have been able to do that, but through distance learning. So obviously I needed to adopt a whole different skill set so that I felt that students would be engaged. Um, I feel really fortunate. I don't know anyone who was diagnosed with COVID. Um, I don't know anyone who passed away. So I feel very blessed that um, I've stayed healthy and those that I love have stayed healthy. Yeah, that's amazing. From what you mentioned earlier, I think we should definitely take a look at the past like you mentioned. So I'm someone that's studying a hybrid of marketing and a few other disciplines at UConn. Um, I'm double majoring right now. So I'm, I'm studying economics and then a concentrated field called consumer behavior. So a lot of marketing principles, a lot of psychology, a lot of media classes. Um, so what got you interested into the field of marketing itself? So like I said, back in high school, in the Midwest, they actually had marketing classes. And I just thought it was so interesting. It was kind of like putting a puzzle together that you had all these random pieces that you had to put together to make a whole. And so 
I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the competition. I participated in DECA, which is the student business organization. And so, you know, I love that you're going into consumer behavior because, you know, if you don't understand who your customer is, right. you're not going to be successful. But I also love that you're partnering it with a more rigorous topic area of economics because I think you have to look at the data mm. and with the data, then you can see some patterns of behavior. You know, it, it used to be that if you wanted to get your PhD, you would have to get a PhD in economics. And it only was in the last maybe 25 years. Well, actually it's, it's actually 40 years. So not in your lifetime, but it definitely in my lifetime, um, you you know, when I was ready to get my PhD, I would have had to have gotten an economics degree versus now most colleges have a professor of marketing. So you, then you can specialize in social media. You can specialize in all the different areas of marketing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, the, the field has changed a lot in terms of marketing with everything going digital. It's very interesting, very interesting times to learn about marketing as well. Well, and just that whole publicity versus public relations issue. And if you look at the COVID, you're going to have people who are working for states who are presenting economic data, you know, in reference to businesses that have gone out of business, um, people who are in need of resources, plus number of cases, people are demanding more data. And so with that, you've got to have your public relations people working with the state department so that people can feel good about what's happening in their state and the decisions that are made by the governors. Yeah, absolutely. I do have a little side question following up on that. I've been reading a lot about how marketing has, you know, poor marketing campaigns have really affected a company's bottom line. There's that, that advertisement that Peloton did I think last year yes. and that, and that really hit the company hard. I think they lost, um, it was a very significant figure that, that it affected them. But I'm wondering, have you seen a, a change in how much marketing plays into a company's bottom line compared to, you know, maybe a decade or two ago? I'm curious just to, if, if you have any thoughts on that. Right. And everything that you do, is going to impact society. So we can take, um, so I, it wasn't that long ago, and I don't know if you remember it, when General Mills decided to have a Cheerios commercial, and it was a um, biracial family. So this absolutely adorable young girl has a black dad and a white mom. The little girl asked the dad about um, why he's eating Cheerios and it's heart healthy. Well, I think the mom says, you know, is it good for dad's heart? And the mom says, yes, it says so right here on the box. And then he wakes up from a nap and he's got Cheerios all over his heart. <laughs> and um, General Mills got a lot of grief for the fact that they used a multi-race family and their response which I praise was 
we have people in our commercials that look like America. So, you know, I'm sorry, if you don't like it, don't buy Cheerios, pretty mm -hmm. much. So that's a positive one. Certainly the Peloton, you know, was the girl too thin that she, you know, versus healthy. Right. You know, those are all issues and concerns. Yeah, absolutely. Joe Camel. Joe Camel mm -hmm. was the cool camel who was smoking camel cigarettes and he got banned because he needed to, he was promoting smoking to young people to be cool. You smoked, but then you got Tony the tiger and I bet I talked about it when you were in class. I believe that he was using performance enhancing drugs because he is a lot more buff today than he was when he first started out. <laughs> so, um, you know, so businesses have to react quickly. So one of the things that I had my students do right away in the pandemic was to look at how commercials had changed. So one of the commercials I remember was a car company. I think it was Lincoln. And they talked about if you need to have your car repaired or you want to buy a new one, we would have an easy transfer uh, bringing a vehicle to you and then taking your vehicle and you didn't even have to get out of your house. So um, that's a national company, but I'm sure that a lot of small businesses, especially those that were able to have takeout food or, or any other services, um, you know, they had to make quick decisions right away. It used to be that you had to have your commercials in six months prior, but now because of advances in technology, we can make those changes really quickly, which is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. Studying digital marketing on the side, I've learned a lot about how, like you mentioned, we're so quick to adapt to the new situations going on. Companies are, because of technology, they can put out statements so much faster than they used to be able to do. So it's very interesting. That's one of the reasons why I'm very interested in it is because there's so much opportunity in digital marketing. There's so much to go out and, and create and see. And, you know, it's, a, it's an ever growing field. So it's very exciting. So a lot of people are not familiar with all of the aspects of what was happening out in Minneapolis after um, the unfortunate situation with Mr. Floyd and his murder. And um, there were businesses that were ransacked and set on fire and there was looting. And there was a statement by the CEO of Target, which probably did not make press in the East, but it definitely made press out there. And he sent out a message. So Mr. Floyd, um, was murdered on Monday night. And then by Thursday, there were evacuations and fires and looting. And then um, Friday was a bad night in the city. And Saturday, it became a little bit more calm because of the National Guard coming in. But he made a statement and said, go ahead and loot every Target store that you want to. I don't care. Just leave the small businesses alone. You know, we're a big company. We'll recover. We have insurance, but leave the small businesses alone. Mm -hmm. So 
that was good press in his decision to make that statement. Yeah, absolutely. I did hear about it here just because of, I think, Twitter, you know, everything becomes... Yeah, that's true. Everything is uh, at your fingertips now. But yeah, that was an interesting statement too, because the as soon as we got word and video of people looting, you instantly get hit with like some emotions. People experience different things and they they have different feelings towards what's going on. So for the CEO to put out a statement, I think is a very powerful thing. As these events continue to happen, there isn't really an excuse for corporations to be quiet, especially when they have these multi-million you know, dollar platforms that they've built out in social media. So there's definitely a lot of change in that avenue. So the... Um the whole situation is, you know, obviously we were all anxious and it takes a while to really comprehend and understand. And only through listening to podcasts or listening to interviews online have I really understood the power of the rioting and looting. And certainly there were people that came into the Minneapolis area just to do damage, but the local people that were looting, um, I actually was in Minneapolis at that time. And I went down to the memorial um, after things had settled down. It's quite, quite a moving place. And one of the things that was written on a, it was a bus terminal, kind of a bus station where you'd wait for the bus. Um, It said, buildings can be rebuilt, but you know, you can't bring a person's life back. So, you know, when you think about that, we, sometimes we don't listen until something violent happens or we make some kind of an outburst. I mean, think about it when you were a little kid, you wanted something and your parents weren't listening to you while you threw a tantrum and then they listened to you. So the population was making a tantrum and saying, listen, this has gone on too long and um, we need to make some noise so that there can be a difference. And I, I really... I'm glad that you brought up that point about looking to learn from other people's perspectives on this thing. The main reason that I started this, this podcast series is to be able to share my guests perspective on different topics so that people that might not understand from if it's my perspective or your perspective will now have the ability to learn this, this tragic event happened close in, in your in close, my home state. <laughs> yeah. In your home state. How did your, initial opinion kind of evolve as you started to learn more about what was going on? Unfortunately, on um, Monday, Memorial Day, that night was when uh, Mr. Floyd was murdered. And so, you know, we started to get information and obviously, like everybody else, we saw the video um, on our feeds and so, you know, that's how it happened. I will, um, I will admit when it first, when there first started to be looting and rioting, 
Um, some of the DECA members have gone down to Atlanta and we always try to go to the um, Dr. Martin Luther King Memorial. And one of the things that he always talked about was uh, peaceful protest. He actually went and lived with Gandhi for a period of time. So I was anxious about the fact that these weren't peaceful protests. You know, um, the, the fact that I knew people that were living in the area, the fact that I knew people that were in the St. Paul area when they were rioting, and I knew people that were being evacuated and the anxiety of the fact that, you know, the, the businesses that they would go to, they would, um, you know, they were being burnt down, they were being burglarized. Uh, so, you know, there's that anxiety that you initially have and you wonder, you know, is there going to be peace or is it going to be another situation with the LA riots? Um, and so at the time that everything was happening, I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is the LA riots that are happening in, in Minneapolis. Um, but, you know, once you start being more aware of what is happening around you, you really change your perspective. So I believe certainly Mr. Floyd was murdered by a police officer, but what really killed him, and some people will not agree with me on this, was the pandemic. So when you think about it, he was a man who had a job and he had actually come up to the Minneapolis area to work and because of the pandemic, he wasn't working. And so, um, so the pandemic happened. Um, he went to the small convenience corner convenience store and he was passing a counterfeit bill. So one of the first days after his murder, um, the, the manager said at that time, he changed his tune later on, but um, he said on TV, he said, you know, we call the cops all the time for a counterfeit bill, but they never come. So it was because the, um, of the pandemic, the police weren't as busy, so they came up to that part of the Minneapolis area and then we know the, the result of the situation. But when you think about it, if he had a different money source or if he had you know, uh, an ability to have a different job so he might have savings. Um, so I think it was the pandemic that put him in this unfortunate situation and then he was murdered. And when you think about it, think about all the people that don't have enough resources and don't have jobs right now and aren't able to buy their, um, their family food and pay their bills and pay their rent. And so um, I believe in the Black Lives Matters movement but I don't want them to 
be fighting for equality. I want them to be fighting for equity. And I think that people who have been impacted by this pandemic need to have more. I was working, my husband was working. The government sent us all stimulus checks. We really didn't need the stimulus check. So it's a situation where maybe the stimulus check could have gone to someone else. Now, there's another whole scenario here. So did Mr. Floyd have a bank account so that his stimulus check could be actually deposited? Did Mr. Floyd have a permanent address so he would have had uh, something on file so he would have been able to get a paper check? All of these things are equity issues. You know, do banks charge too much for people to have bank accounts, especially for people who may not be earning enough money? Target just said, we're going to be bumping up our minimum wage to $15 an hour. Excellent. You know what? You can drive down the streets of Hartford and you can be on Scarborough Street where they've got, you know, 6,000 square foot houses that are worth millions of dollars and drive another mile down the road to Annie Fisher School where they are rebuilding projects for individuals who don't have enough income. And in order to get into that housing, you need to make $26,000 a year or less. $26,000 a year, that's twelve fifty dollars an hour. That is an equity issue. That is an issue that people aren't being paid enough to be able to afford decent housing. Oh, let's say now you're a Target employee. You're now making $15 an hour. You still can't pay your bills. You still can't provide for your family. But now you can't even stay in that housing because you make too much money. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 I see what you mean there equity um and equality i think is some sometimes people get those two concepts confused and they try to you know they they're either actually vouching for equity but they're calling it equality and those things kind of get right. lost in translation i do think too i can i can see where you're coming from about how this pandemic put mr floyd in this you know in this position but i you know i do think to many people have made that argument and just ended the argument there they said you know he put himself in this position or you know you know if it was a pandemic that put him in this position like what can we do about that i do think that this is a systemic issue you know police brutality is nothing new it's it's right. happened it's happened to people who are who have been in good positions this happened to people that you know, didn't use a counterfeit bill. I mean, one of the most heartbreaking stories that I've, you know, come across is when we think about the 12 year old boy in Cleveland who was just carrying a, a replica, uh, a toy gun, you know, and he, right. he was murdered without even being able to process what was right. going on. All right. So I just want to jump in here very quickly. This is a week after our conversation the one you're hearing right now and I just I know that there's going to be some reaction to this statement about 
the pandemic. Was George Floyd murdered because of this pandemic? No, I don't think so. Has this pandemic put people in uncomfortable and difficult positions that they might not have been in before the pandemic? Absolutely. Has it amplified different struggles in people's lives? Absolutely. George Floyd lost his life in a system that was never designed to protect his life. I hear a lot of things about the system is broken. And I'm not going to go too in-depth on this right now, but just think to yourself, is the system broken or is it working the exact way it was designed to? I mentioned the 12-year-old boy, and I was ashamed in this conversation that I forgot his name. And uh, as soon as the conversation ended, I went on Google and I revisited what had happened in Ohio. Tamir Rice is his name. 12-year-old boy who was murdered by a cop for holding a airsoft gun or a toy replica gun. Murdered so fast that he didn't even have time to process what was happening. He wasn't really given a chance to say, oh, they're responding to me. And it's just so heartbreaking to read these stories again because just look at the way the media portrays a lot of these things. Just look at the way we're told this is how you're supposed to think. Tamir Rice, oh, he was 5'7", he weighed like 100-something pounds, he looked like a grown man. I read that somewhere, and I was like, why are you telling me this? To justify what happened, where's the protocol? What even is the protocol? As I was listening to this audio playback, and as I was having this conversation, I realized that this was a moment where you can come to disagree with Miss Byron's statement, or even my statements. When Miss Byron made that point, even though I disagreed with that, that statement, it gave me more to kind of research on. And it also gave me some, some new perspective on how other people might be dealing with this, this murder and this incident and how other people might be looking at different root causes. And I think we're trying to come up with one solution. And we like to use these words like understand the root cause and then create the solution. But if people can't understand... Or if people don't see the same root causes, then they're going to come up with different solutions, right? That's evident everywhere. And I appreciate you guys for listening to the conversation this far. And if you haven't skipped over me talking yet, I appreciate that as well. I just wanted to kind of emphasize this point that we might not agree with what people are saying, but it's important to kind of understand where they're coming from. And with that being said, I'll let you guys get back to the conversation. Thank you for listening so far and i hope you enjoy the rest of the conversation so my first episode of this podcast i, I sat down with uh Raheem mama and we had a conversation yes. we had a conversation about a lot of these things and one of the things that we kind of took away is in order to look at these issues we have to really dive deep and look at the root causes of these issues and figure out like what can we do because we're, we're hesitant to call and we don't even want to call what's been happening these last few weeks, current events, because they're not really current. They're, mm. they're, they're issues that have been embedded in our country. What do you think about, and I don't know how familiar you are with, you know, the defund the police kind of the stance on that. A lot of my friends are advocating for that. And I've had conversations with people from different, you know, people that are from the generation above mine that don't, completely agree with that or don't see the value or the see the same thing that people in my generation do. So I'm curious as to what your thoughts are on that. 
Well, I'm actually in favor of it. So there's several programs out there. Um, one is in Camden, New Jersey, which Camden, New Jersey, if you know your history behind that particular geographic location, it was one of the highest crime uh, spots, cities in the United States at one point in time. And so they have a program where the police are in the community, they are part of the community, and therefore um, the, the funding, it isn't like the police doesn't have a budget. They have a budget, but it's a different style of budget so that when something is happening, the it might be social workers that come in, or it might be a team of people who can de-escalate the situation rather than the police coming in. Uh, there's a program in Oregon, um, I think it's in Portland, uh, and it's called Cahoots, and I believe that that particular um, program is what Hartford is looking at. So what they're trying to do is to look at programs that have been successful, and it's not that they take away all the funding of the police, but that they redistribute the funds so that the appropriate person is called. Mm -hmm. So um, I am familiar with it. I actually really like it. Um, I think that people need a lot of assistance. And so um, life isn't easy. So why not make it so that it's a community? So going back to Camden, New Jersey, when all of the different major cities decided to have protesting and riots and burning of buildings. The police and the people were out on the streets together, arm in arm, protesting the fact that um, Mr. Floyd had been murdered and that um, it shouldn't have happened that way. So I, I see where it can definitely benefit. I, I personally can't even imagine being a mother and my son or daughter is out maybe coming home from work or from a social gathering, it doesn't really matter, and that they are stopped by the police for no other reason than the color of their skin. I just find that to be, that's where your systemic issue comes into place. Yeah. We also need to look at, um, at, taking down the police unions. They are way too strong. So um, with that in place, you know, police officers can, can actually do things that are pretty horrific and it's within their jurisdiction to do that. So I read the Minneapolis police manual. I know I'm very strange, but um, I did. And uh, there, there's a very sad statement in there that a police officer at that time, it's now been taken out of the manual, but um, they could kneel on someone um, and have a chokehold on someone until they pass out. That is in their manual. I mean, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, think about it. It could be one of your children. It could be, it could be one of my students. It could be, you know, your father, your mother. It's, yeah. um, it's really scary. 
Yeah, I agree. I agree with you there. I think those funds need to be redistributed into into social workers, into figuring out de-escalation strategies because right. either way, they, I don't think the, the kneeling into the neck for nearly nine minutes was completely uncalled for. On top of that, when we look at these issues moving forward, it's important to figure out de-escalation because, you know, me, Joe Lemieux, and Ryan Garrett were, were talking the other day about this exact, um, this exact idea, this principle of de-escalation and that there needs to be a proper way to solve these issues. In, in general, there's a lot of issues that come from not limited mental health resources. When people don't have the adequate access to those resources, what, they don't have many options in that sense. And if we don't you know, figure out how to give people the resources that they actually need, you know, the, the, the value of equity and removing these barriers, if we can't give those people those resources, what, how many options do they have? You know? yeah. and so if you go back in history to your LA riots information, that's when the chokehold came to be. So they actually taught the police that the, one of the only ways that they could take these people down, there was a huge drug problem in LA. And so the, if a person was on the drug, it actually increased their strength. And so the only way that they could put them down was by having a chokehold and literally making that person unconscious. But the LA riots, that was back in the 1980s and we're still using it today. So, you know, we haven't, learn from the past that we need to move forward on what's right and how we treat people. There's a lot of work that needs to be done because these are all connected. You know, when we talk about a lot of the issues we face today, it's not, these aren't surface level issues, right? So we talk about police brutality. And like you mentioned, how these unions are, they're Goliaths. It's very difficult to take them down. And they're, they allow these things to happen with, you know, we look at qualified immunity and then we look at, you know, what else is going on that kind of influences this culture? You know, if you have a, a mayor of a city allowing these things to continue, then you have to shift attention to politics as well. And, you know, a lot of these things are connected, um, which makes it all that much more difficult to kind of sometimes scale these, right? Like to figure out where is this issue actually coming from? You know, it's easy to write off a lot of these events as just one-off. Even like you mentioned the pandemic, we could just say that this was just a one-off event. Who can predict that? But at the same time, we can see in our healthcare that there's very um, alarming issues there and equipment and all of these things. And I think the timing of all of this as well, one of my biggest issues is how come, you know, nurses and doctors have to wear their own equipment, their own makeshift equipment, that's not even, you know, actually adequate for what they're dealing with. But we can militarize, you know, police departments that might not need it. I mean, there's, you know, heavy armed, heavy armed, uh, basically like mini tanks and Willimantic. Do we need that if we don't have other resources? So I mean, that's just, I think, thinking points for everyone. Right, right. For sure. Well, and, you know, sometimes I'm embarrassed to be studying marketing because when I look at how much a CEO of a company is getting 
and how much the lowest paid employee is getting, there's too big of a discrepancy there. And so, you know, those are issues that have to be put into place. Now, in the late 1980s, early 1990s, at that point in time, laws were changed. It originally was that the CEO could be sued and could be liable for mistakes made by the company. And that's why they made so much money in case they were sued by a, by a customer, so on and so forth. But that liability was taken away. They changed the laws. I believe it was in 1990. And so with that in mind, um, they don't need to be making that big of a salary as they used to make. You know, it, it seems ridiculous. Why do we have people who can't buy groceries and then we've got people who have multiple homes and vehicles and everything else? Mm -hmm. So, you know, there is that equity issue as well. But I think that one of the things that we need to be promoting is education. So we need to keep students in school who are having challenges in school. And then that goes back to the pandemic. I saw students who were struggling with distance learning. How are we helping them? But then, you know, if you can't graduate from high school, what kind of a job are you going to have for the rest of your life? And the GED test is actually a really hard test. So what opportunities do we have for people out there to help them be able to make a, you know, middle-class income, which really isn't that high right. and be able to support themselves and be a contributing part of society. I wanted to know like, as an educator yourself, what do you think that our, our current school system is failing to prepare students for? I mean, education is definitely a huge, I think it's one of the biggest elements in, in all of this stuff. So like, what do you think we're failing to prepare students for in this, in the real world in that sense? Well, you know, certainly you can judge school districts here and there. I, I don't think that we're creating empathetic enough students. I mean, I like to think that, you know, when DECA did their food drive, when we did the dodgeball tournament and donated the money to Covenant Soup Kitchen, that we were, you know, providing some element of social responsibility from a business standpoint. But what kind of empathy are we teaching to individual students within the building. You know, unless you have the skills and the time and the energy to individually understand who each student is, you don't really know what their story is. I, I wanna make t-shirts that says, don't judge me, you don't know my story. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think my son was the one who came up with that. So, I mean, really, it's like you're just judging me from my physical appearance, not by who I am and what I might have gone through or is currently going through. It's, it's not easy. It's not an easy life. And, and um, we hope that everyone will be able to graduate and get a 
job that they love and everything else. But um, really, it's all about money. And it's all about, you know, how much are we going to pay these teachers? We can't have bigger class. We can't have smaller classrooms because, you know, to enable the teacher to get to know their students. We've got to stay within a budget, so on and so forth. But we do need to teach people to, you know, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes for a little while um, to understand what's going on. There is obviously limitations within budgets, and that alone is a, an issue that needs to be tackled, how much funding schools are getting. But at the same time, with the existing resources, just teaching students how to you know, really just value other emotions, understand different perspectives. I think that's something that is such an undervalued element of just the human experience, you know, just being able to understand, like, uh, maybe understand is not the correct word, but just be able to embrace someone else's perspective or try to understand. We're never going to be able to understand someone else's life completely, but being able to have the emotional intelligence to understand why are they upset or you know, maybe this is something that I haven't experienced. I will say that going through EO Smith High School, they, they did a good job in, in class offerings for the people to learn about things that could be applied into the real world. I think a class like the two that always come to my mind is, you know, personal finance and public speaking are two classes that I almost wish were mandatory in some sense, because there's so many things that we need to learn from you know, from a personal finance perspective, if you never learn about how to manage a credit card and debt properly, you're going to continue to just, it's, it's just a very hard mountain to climb once you're at the bottom. An interesting thing too is, you know, if you're struggling with money, if you're from a low income household and you don't have much disposable, disposable income, if you miss that credit card payment because you don't have the money to pay, pay it off, now you're hit with like a, 18 or whatever amount interest rate and now you owe more money so you owe more money for not having that money Um, right it's a vicious cycle right exactly so there's just a lot that i think it doesn't necessarily need to be a school curriculum for people to learn this but i think we really should be pushing for people to learn more about these things before it actually happens to them before you get a credit card in your hand maybe learn about that some more and i think right but then i go back to the financial institutions. And so someone forgets to pay their bill. Who knows what's going on in their lives? They could have a sick family member. They could, you know, Mm -hmm. what day is it? I don't know what day it is. So, (laughs) you know, if you've got a bill due, you might forget. So then why is it that the financial institution is allowed to immediately bump up your interest rate rather than having someone call and say, Hey, you know, you didn't pay your bill. Is everything okay with you? So, I mean, talk about customer service. If somebody, you know, in the financial industry was a little bit more empathetic to, Oh my gosh, you just had triplets and you're a little bit overwhelmed (laughs) or, you know, some other life experience then you, I don't think that we're being humanitarians. We're not putting the human elements in how we're actually doing business. 
Um, If we did, I think that obviously if some credit card company did that for me, I'd be telling all my friends, Mm -hmm. switch your credit cards over. Mm -hmm. If there was a bank who was going to allow me to have a lower balance so that I would be able to pay my bills and not get, you know, nickel and dimed with fees, I'd be having all of my friends you know, so that just makes good business sense to me. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that anymore. There is a lack of empathy in some of these institutions. And that's definitely something I think we need to be more aware of figuring out how we can become more empathetic in school before we go out and actually make these decisions that not only impact us, but impact the people around us. So many questions about that too, right? Like why can these institutions is this even ethical? You know, if someone misses their payment, it's not because they want the, it's not because they value the excitement of seeing a higher interest payment. It's because they they can't, they can't pay it off. And uh, yeah, I guess that it all ties back to that, that point of empathy. Like what are we actually valuing here? Big pharmaceutical companies is another great example. Who knows how much this vaccine will cost once it's out, right? Who knows? And why, this is a global pandemic issue, which means there'll be, at least in, in the United States, there'll be a collective outrage if you know, 300 million Americans need to get this vaccine and it's super expensive. People, there's going to be a collective outcry. But when you look at it, insulin, for example, why is it that you, people have to take up a second job just to afford that, right? So there's so many things. EpiPens is another right, one. Right. And these yeah. are things that help people survive and I don't know if there's a specific moment in time, but it seems like at a certain point, the value of a human life is traded off for the value of a dollar, right? How much right. can we can we get out of these right. people? But there is, I think this generation, the generation that I'm with, I think we're starting to recognize that. And I'm having a lot of these good conversations with people that want to push these these thoughts outside of the friend group. They want to actually talk to their bosses. They want to talk to their educators and say like, what can we do differently? And you know, the answer won't always be a simple answer, but it gives us some more guidance. And I see a lot of people in my, my generation kind of pushing for those answers and it makes me proud, you know? And it makes me proud because you're going to, you're going to be the future. You are going to be the people who are going to make changes and make sure that you stand up for the rights of every human being and that um, you make sure that businesses and organizations and occupations all have empathy. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, it's a bright future. You're a great group of people, great generation. If we shift back to the pandemic itself and you mentioned some students, you know, they have difficulty with distance learning and doing things remotely. And, you know, if you don't have access to Wi-Fi and all of these things, has your school itself combated some of these issues where they brought to the attention of these issues or? So um, I was very fortunate. Norwich Tech has a one-for-one program. So every student has a Chromebook. So we basically thought we were going to be out for two weeks to flatten the curve and you know it was an announcement on the PA everybody take home your Chromebooks and then if you didn't they allowed you back into the building 
the next week um, or so to get your Chromebooks. Um, so everybody had Chromebooks and then if they're, so because we're a Chromebook school, the school already knew who um, needed to have hotspots and they actually more than likely had hotspots um, due to the fact that their family didn't have internet access so that they could do homework at home. Um, so we were really fortunate. What happened in our situation was, um, you know, people kind of flip their schedule and, you know, you're not getting up to go on a bus, you're, you know, getting up to be in a Google Meet. So um, some people lost their, their motivation. Some people had mental health issues with isolation. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of social service issues, you know, uh, students that normally had special services, paraprofessionals or case managers, they, you know, had limited access to them instead of having um, a period with their case manager. So uh, once again, there's just so many issues with that, that really couldn't be identified. And then the icing on the cake was that students realized that didn't matter if they handed in an assignment or not, that they would get the lowest grade of a 50. So some students chose not to be engaged because they were going to get a 50 anyway, and they were year-long courses. So if they had done well the first, second, and third marking period, you know, with a 50, they were still going to end up with a 70 or an 80. Mm -hmm. So... You know, yeah. yeah. if you're not held accountable, you're going to do whatever you do to get away with it. You know what I mean? I mean, it's just like police brutality. Accountability has to be part of the equation as well. Empathy and accountability. Mm-hmm. As an educator, that's always been an issue. Hold your teachers accountable. I'm more than happy. You know, if I'm not doing it right, tell me and I will change my ways. But, you know, I don't know that that's always happening everywhere. Yeah, definitely. That's a very supportive approach and not universal just yet. But the system and the structure of school itself and public school itself, having people, you know, come in at a certain time and providing them that structure from, you know, whether it's seven to two or whatever the time is, right? Just having them come in, being in in that type of environment um, is so so crucial i think we're so quick to put people on these like conveyor belts where it's hey you have to go through uh your public education then you have to go pursue higher education then you have to get a secure job and all these things that we we're so focused on that that we tend to forget about the resources we have right now and in public education being able to actually talk to someone that's older than you talk to a teacher talk to um, a guidance counselor and just try to figure out what you can do now to better embrace this moment and get the most out of it. Because you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, we're, 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 I'm approaching my junior year in college and I've talked to a lot of different people about different approaches to higher education, especially now this fall, most of my classes will be online and people that are paying ridiculous amounts of money to just take online classes. I think there's this element of fear that if, 
I'm a freshman starting off a four-year college. Would it look bad if I went to a community college? Or, you know, all of these like social, these stigmas, right. it, then it becomes fear talking and not practicality. Or maybe if someone doesn't have an interest in a, a particular major, but they've just been told like this is a safe and secure, you know, a route to go down. I think there's a lot of fear that plays into it and it's disguised as practicality. It's disguised. So having like teachers or having someone tell you a more realistic answer to those types of tough questions, I think is really important. And for people that are listening that are in these, it's an, it's an uncomfortable time for everyone. It's an unknown time. It's uncertain. Um, but I think we'd be foolish to expect life to just come back to whatever we think is normal. I think now is the time to really, look and see what's going on around us and figure out, you know, is this where we want to be? Is this what we want to do? Or what can we make in terms of change? That's just how I, I hope that we don't go back to the way we were. Mm-hmm. I hope that, you know, our eyes are open to many different things. There is that whole social element of going off to college and, you know, life experiences and everything else. But you know, you'd have to look at that data in terms of how many students drop out, how many students are successful, and maybe it is a redefinition of what is needed and uh, what needs to happen. Yeah, absolutely. In the future of education. Yeah, I would say for people that pursue higher education, I think the transition from high school to college, you know, it's, it's a difficult one. Not everyone is prepared. Um, in my situation, you know, no one in my household, you know, graduated from college in the United States. So I didn't really know what to expect. So there's a lot of potential in students, but they just don't have the resources to figure out how to navigate the thing in front of them. I don't think we have enough emphasis on that because there's a lot of students that struggle. They, they look right. to drop out because they just, they don't see a way. I was blessed to have a, an academic advisor who cared about me as a person first and then as a student and trying to figure out how we can blend those two together so that the things that I'm passionate about, I can use that in academics and kind of figure out how to navigate this. And empathy is really the, the key word in all of this, I think. Well, you're, you've, you're very successful. You've been doing a great job. And there's big things ahead in your future. And it's just taking one step at a time moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So my last bit of questions for you today, um, this is something that I like to do with all guests. It's just to kind of give them some rapid fire questions. Um, if you're ready, we can get started with these. and then. Okay, I'm ready. All right. Favorite book you've ever read? A really weird one. Um, it's called My Antonia. It's by, um, uh, I forget now, but um, it's, a, it, yeah, My Antonia. Awesome. Are you watching any shows on Netflix right now that you recommend? Um, I was a big fan of The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. So in such dark times, I like to laugh. Right. Absolutely. If you could give a piece of advice to any student, um, whether they're listening or just, you know, any student out there, what would that piece of advice be? Find your passion, find your gift. Everybody's different. So don't live somebody else's life, live your life. And 
you were born to do it. And so go out there and use your full potential with your passion and your gift. Absolutely. Uh, that's a great, great answer. Um, I'm just looking at my notes though. I did forget to, I know you mentioned your college mascot earlier. Yes. Um, I'm, I'm curious if you don't mind just sharing about that experience and, and what you so, um So University of North Dakota, we were the fighting Sioux. So our mascot was a, um, an Indian brave. And the reason it was, was because uh, we competed against the university, uh, not university, it was North Dakota State University, and they were the bison. So the Indian brave, um, the Indian brave was to conquer the bison because the bison would then provide the Indian braves family and tribe with food. So that's where it actually came from. The NCAA came out and said, you can't have a Native American mascot. And so I was really upset about that. And um, so they changed the name to the Fighting Hawks. And I will say that as, you know, I have my hockey jersey, I have my school sweatshirts. It's like, what? Fighting Hawks now? And uh, through all of this, I have accepted and said, you know what? Thank you, NCAA. That was a wise decision. Part of my um, discrepancy was that the actual uh, Sioux tribe that the, the mascot was representing actually found it to be an honor. The Sioux tribe, though, is uh, extremely large and not all members voted. So there wasn't enough members to vote to keep the um, Indian Brave as the mascot. But now I'm actually really happy that they don't have the Indian Brave as the mascot um, because yeah. you know, we need to be empathetic to our Native American brothers and sisters. Absolutely. So last few questions here today. Um, did you have a specific, you know, teacher or mentor growing up that really helped you navigate, um, whether it was your professional career or just your career in academics as well? Um, I have had several different people and, you know, I had a boss from 3M who was instrumental in listening to me and actually recommended that not that I wasn't a good salesperson, but he said, you know what, you are a teacher at heart and I, you need to reflect upon that. Mm -hmm. um, my marketing teacher in high school, my fifth grade teacher, interesting enough, it was St. Patrick's Day and you know, we're all dressed in green and she was dressed in orange. And I was like, why are you dressed in orange? And so then she was able to open up the conversation about the symbolization of the green for Irish and the orange for Irish. So, um, you know, just those little things that teachers have done along the way. Um, and of course, my big motivational speaker is Zig Ziglar. 
I'm very appreciative of you coming on. And uh, there's this little printout document that hangs up in my room and it's under the photo of when I graduated high school. And it's the original speech that I brought to you the morning of graduation. <laughs> and now not many people know this story, um, but because I had to give this, because I was giving the speech, I remember one night just sitting at my desk and just talking out loud, just figuring out what I wanted to say. And then once I, I recorded it on my phone, I'd play it back and I'd actually type it into this, this Word document. And I remember thinking to myself, eh, this isn't a right speech, but I should probably get it checked out. I remember you letting me come into your uh, room. This was after school was over, I believe. Um, and it was the day of graduation and graduation rehearsal. And you helped me condense. Condense might not be the best word because I was up there for 15 minutes. <laughs> but you helped me edit this speech. And, and uh, there was a lot of things on that day that I did want to say. But you helped me realize what's the meaning behind all of these things. And uh, I'm forever grateful for that because I look back at that now and I have it hanging in my room and all the, the, the edits you helped me make. And I think to myself, you really saved me from uh, going up and making a, a fool of myself. So I'm always grateful for that one, that one uh, day in particular. You wouldn't have made a fool of yourself. You, um, one of the things in life is that you have to have life experiences. And so the older you get, the more wisdom you have in terms of what should and shouldn't happen. And so, therefore, it was just a wisdom moment that you could tell those things to those people individually, but mm. you probably wouldn't want to say it in front of right. thousands of people. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That That is definitely, that following summer, I did say some of those things to people individually, and the consensus was, that's really funny, but I'm glad you didn't say that out loud. And uh, <laughs> I credit you for that. But yeah, so thank you for coming on. You're welcome. I really appreciate and really enjoy these, these conversations. And I think one last thing to kind of, you know, I think you could co-sign on this as well is that these are just our perspectives on these events. And these are different, you know, we, your, your home state was where this tragic, tragic incident happened, where a lot of these people came in, for example, and started to loot and started to do all these things. And it's interesting hearing someone else's perspective on this. And we talk about equity, we talk about empathy and education. As a listener, I hope people understand the value of these perspectives. They don't have to be universally agreed with, yeah. right? They don't, have to, they don't have to say that you speak for every single educator out there when you talk about empathy. Correct. Our opinions do not have to be completely agreed with, but I just want to give people the ability to learn from someone else. So thank you. Thank you. So just remember empathy and love for one another. All right. Mm -hmm.